Welcome to the Architectural Education Off the Record Podcast, where we discuss everything, something, and nothing about architecture. I'm your host, Vincent Hui. In this episode, I am joined by four esteemed grads from Ryerson Architectural Science who then pursued to uh, go into industry and also went and did their graduate degrees or are undertaking their graduate degrees in, I'd say, fairly notable institutions. So today I'm joined by Sam Gantus, Christopher Pinn, Ariel Cook, I I don't want to say the whole entire thing, and of course, Elsa Cragen. So just uh, with respect to Elsa and Ariel, yes, they are from the legendary first year first class co-op so you too can be like them when you grow up and of course i have sam and he's been uh, he's he's, he's he retates them uh but he's got some really good stories and he also then became an instructor at another institution which i will allow him to elaborate on his story and of course chris pin uh he's more of, he's the young guy in the room and he's been uh, uh he went through co-op and of course he's been in america working his way for big name firms so i probably I'm the worst person to give the bios for everyone. So I'm going to start off with Elsa first. Elsa, can you please tell us, after you finished DAS, where did you go study and why? Uh, yeah, so I went to uh, Delft in the Netherlands. Um, and uh, it's a two-year program. And it's I guess its semesters are a little bit different than here in North America, where it's about uh, 10 months of the year instead of the, the eight, I guess. So... Mm-hmm. I decided to go just because I was really interested in getting the international um, kind of experience and particularly with Delft, it kind of draws people from really all over the world. So um, you're not only getting kind of like the Dutch influence, but really you're learning from your peers and they come from uh, everywhere, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, I guess, in specifics, there's a lot more flexibility in your thesis work. Um, that's something that you kind of decide what you want to do after you get there. Um, mm-hmm. And it depends on kind of studios you're taking, what um, kind of piques your interest. And you could also do kind of whatever you want uh, at that point. So that's what drew me. You just made Delft sound like the most open-ended master's program possible, but that's, <laughs> that's cool. Okay, I'm going to throw it to you next, Sam. Sam, can you tell me again, where did you study and why? Well, I would precede it with saying that uh, after I finished at Ryerson, I worked for two years and taught. Uh, and then I went to the MIT School of uh, Architecture and Planning to pursue my MRC. And in contrast to Elsa's experience, it was a three and a half year master's with uh, a three month summer and a one month winter. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and did you want me to tell me, talk about the program as well? Well, I mean, just just to hit up a couple of little things. Yes, definitely talk about the program, but uh, can you just describe your teaching and uh, as well? Uh, so, I mean, throughout my experience, I was uh, TAing and researching at the school, but uh, upon completion, I sort of applied for this newly started thing, which was called a teaching fellowship at MIT. And so I continued to teach there at a sort of uh, slightly higher level, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, for, I want to say, two years. Uh, and since then, I've also been teaching at other institutions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then tell me, why MIT? What was there at MIT that you wanted to go into do your master's for? I mean, admittedly, I think uh, I was led by a a misconception about what MIT was about. And that was to say, it's a focus on 
technical enterprise. And that's not exclusively the case. And in fact, it's like a little more critical. So I would say that became an appealing thing as I started, but before starting, that was pretty appealing. The other distinction uh, I would make is that it felt like everyone when I went to visit the school was super down to earth in comparison to other grad schools that I was visiting. And so I really appreciated that and felt welcome. And that was, I think, pretty appealing. Okay. Um, so then I'm going to go to you, Ariel. Again, where did you study and why? Uh, I went to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I went there for my Master's of Architecture degree. It was a three-year program. I chose it because I had a very different curriculum from what I learned at Ryerson. I feel like I got a very, very thorough education, and I wanted to expand on that. Uh, and I was looking at the work they were doing there and the research that was happening within the faculty and how it aligned with my interest at the time, which had to do with digital fabrication, and I was kind of interested in getting into robotics eventually, which mm -hmm. they were starting to build on there. And then also just seeing the images that were coming out of the school, looking at their students' portfolios, even looking at their Instagram. And I saw the projects and I said, I want to make something like that. I could probably do it, but I need someone to tilt me in the right direction and teach me the right things so I can create those images as well. Hmm. Okay. Um, and then last but not least, Chris, you just recently graduated. Um, you're the youngest in the back. Semi-recently, yeah. Well, I mean, all things being... <laughs> Listen, when you're immortal like me, I mean, what, what's a decade, really? So, Chris, tell me, what, what, what did you, um, where did you end up studying and, and, and why? Um, so, where, where are you going? I mean, I'm a little different because I'm, I obviously haven't started my yeah, but Why did yet. you apply to this institution yeah. in particular? So, I, similar to Ariel, I kind of did a retrospective on my undergraduate and wanted to strengthen the, the areas that I felt my undergraduate had lacked a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, I really wanted, there was basically two, two schools of thought for myself. One was I really wanted to push the formalist inside me because I felt like it was sort of trapped uh, in the like extremely rational um, school of thought mm -hmm. that I sort of learned at Ryerson. And I also wanted to get a, a much more robust understanding of the uh, historical and theoretical canon of architecture. Mm. So um, there were some schools like UPenn and SciArc that I was really interested in, but there was also schools like um, the GSD and Yale and Columbia that I thought had a little more of a critical bench mm -hmm. to them. And so I ended up choosing to go to Yale. Um, and I, I'm- well, They chose also, you too, just for the record. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, of course, played factory, um, but I, I was lucky enough to work for uh, a faculty member at Yale or who, who teaches at Yale. And so I, I sort of, I'm a little biased because I got to go to, I got to help out with his studio. Um, I got to go to those, those reviews and kind of like fall in love with the school and um, kind of drink the Yale Kool-Aid, I guess, for, mm -hmm. a, for a, quite a few months beforehand. So um, the, the building is amazing. Uh, I'm super excited to go to school there. Um, and I think it just, it comes across as a really intense incubator for critical and historical thought and theory. And I think it's also, um, there's quite a few electives, um, more mm -hmm. so than some of the other schools I was looking at. So I think the, I think it's malleable for, for me to sort of explore formless roots as well with a good grounding in theory. Okay, so this is really important. So we got we got Penn, we got Yale, we got MIT, we got Delft, okay? And I, I want everyone to know that there are lots of those other students that have also gone to Princeton, GSD, or Harvard, um, SciArc. So it's not as though 
it's impossible, okay? And, and I just thought that getting a good cross-section from our recent grads would be helpful to make sure that students understood what's out there beyond simply the schools necessarily in, in Canada, okay? But I, I think that you raise a couple of good points, all of you, and, and I think one of the first steps that really has to be clarified, you know, I, you alluded to a little bit earlier, Ariel, where you said, I, I went and looked up their Instagram or I did some research. How the hell am I supposed to know? I'll start with you, Ariel. How am I supposed to know what programs offer me? Like, I mean, you know, there's a lot of corporate marketing and, and, and PR and stuff, but how, how are you able to determine and scratch the surface when you're doing research? Well, I feel like it's going to be hard, hard just looking at their Instagram and even looking at their websites. Cause like Sam said, we go in with an idea of what the school is going to be, but really we're presented with something completely different. Mm-hmm. And that, that also happened to me. So my expectation of what I was going to get at Penn was different from what I received. That said, I, it was a very good education that it did fill in those blanks that I wanted to fill. Mm-hmm. But now in, in hindsight, I say the best way to see what I'm going to learn at the institution I'm applying to is to look up lectures by the professors. Because a lot of these universities uh, have visiting professors that travel to other universities as well. And most of those lectures are uploaded to YouTube. Mm-hmm. So to see those lectures would give you a good idea of what you're going to learn in the studio. Hmm. And that's, that's something I wish I had done. Oh, okay. That, that's good. Sam, what would you say beyond simply looking up online and looking at lectures? Uh, what, what piece of advice would you have for students prospectively looking at master's programs? For me, the way I did it was, it was not so much like looking at the website of the university so much as like, uh, now that I'm on the website of the university and looking through the faculty, whose names are familiar and their work familiar and the way that I want to uh, glean something from being near them and interacting with them. So Mm -hmm. I think that's one that's sort of like, look back at the images you've collected over four years uh, or papers or books uh, and sort of make the connections with those names. Mm -hmm. Um, I forget what the second point I was going to make was. (laughs) Um, Stay off the meds. Um, So, uh, okay. You keep on thinking about that through, but, Chris, I'm going to throw it to you then. I mean, sure. we've, got, we've got this kind of lectures. We've kind of got this ability to understand uh, the name of, of, uh, uh, and brand equity that certain faculty yeah. members carry that Sam was referring to. What other things should people be looking at now that, you know, you're the most recent one who's been doing the homework. Yeah. So, so what else should we be looking at? So I think a really good tip, one thing that I got a lot of information out of um, is to make, I mean, this is easier said than done, but to try to find real people from institutions uh, that you can talk to um, and just sit down and have a conversation with them. So I tried and succeeded in most cases to find both faculty members and current students and alumni actually from all the schools I was applying to. And I think you can actually gauge the, the school in an interesting way if you get um, obviously you have to take it with a grain of salt and they're going to mm-hmm. be biased depending on the school they went to. But I think if you can actually sit down with, with people who went to the institutions you're interested in, they can shed light on a lot of things that you didn't expect them or that you didn't expect to find out about the school. Okay. So then how, I mean, how do you do that without sounding creepy and stalkerish? You know what I mean? Um, well, it's a little okay. bit, of, a, <laughs> it comes a, naturally. Vince. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, some of it's luck and some of it's just being super proactive knowing that sounds stalkerish man no when you go (laughs) when you when you start a new job and you're and you know that you need to find people who are either in your position or who have gone through what you're going through Mm -hmm. um you kind of just it's not too hard to interject in the conversation ask where they went to school and see 
um, if they went to a similar school that you're looking into or if they know someone. Um, and just through it's sort of like a chain of conversation. And I think if you're proactive in seeking those people out, it, it's not too hard to find them. Because, I mean, okay. we have, we're working and we're also going to school. So there is a network there to be tapped into. You, you just have to think about it. Okay, so we I got the, to that. Oh, yeah, Sam, go ahead. Because this was exactly the point I had forgotten was Chris's point, and I think it's great. Uh, but I would like to say that the bad end of the scale is like, I've gotten a hundred, not hundreds, but many of these sort of random messages on Facebook from people I've never met saying, is it hard to get into the school? Which I think is completely uh, insensitive and not doing your sort of due diligence. And so to Chris's right. point, like, you know, I would, don't email everyone, just, you know, come up with, you know, pointed questions and things you want to know and try to research them first and then email them with a sort of sensitivity. Right. And I do think there's also something to be said about not doing that. Don't just eat, don't just hunt and be stalkerish and, uh, you know, do cold emails like that. I mean, I think if you just have your, if you have it in the back of your head and you're, and you can just organically work it into conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's the best way about it. Um, Definitely not like the the random I know a friend who knows a friend type of yeah. thing. But like for instance, like when I was in first year, I had a mentor in Ryerson, and I reached out to him. He went to Cornell, mm-hmm. um, and I reached out to him uh, when I was looking at schools and got his insight. So I think that's it's just a a resource that can be tapped if you just mm-hmm. proactive in thinking about it. Yeah, I, I like that approach because it's family helping out family, not just random strangers. But I'm going to throw it to you, Elsa, because you're the one that's taking it off continent. So where mm-hmm. obviously Sam and Chris are talking about get to know certain people, like, I mean, if you've worked with them, I mean, it is possible to have worked in North America with people from, you know, outside of the continent. But in your case, you were looking at something that was completely off continent. It was, you know, out in a different country. How, how would you give some insights to like, what would you suggest for people to look into doing if they were looking at doing graduate programs outside of North America? Uh, yeah, so actually similar to, I guess, everyone else here, I was lucky enough to know someone who, who went there uh, before me so I could get that insight into what the program was like, obviously taking it with a grain of salt. And was that um, the, also a Ryerson grad in that yes. case? Yes. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Just making <laughs> um, sure. So uh, when I got there, I found out that there was a group that was called the Student Ambassadors Program. Um, and basically it's just uh, groups of students that um, are interested in kind of helping prospective students out in terms of answering questions. So that's something that I signed up for because there, there were other Canadians at uh, Delft, but not really a lot of them. So it is kind of hard to find um, that kind of anecdotal, um, I guess, feedback on how the programs are. So mm-hmm. I, I joined that to kind of give uh, other people that kind of help. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, in addition to the the like experience, I think it's important um, and it's a good tool to look at is actually the repositories of the universities. So you can really, you can actually see um, what, you know, the outcome of the thesis um, documents are for students and mm-hmm. you can get a sense, okay, what's involved in all of this? Um, what kind of is expected of me or what should I be kind of gunning for? Um, and it's a really, you know, there's a wide range. Everyone has to submit it to the repository. So you can mm. see kind of what you're, um, what you're getting into. Hmm. So I, actually, I do have a question because with with the four of you, 
uh, all, did all four of you visit the universities physically before you actually signed on the dotted line, so to speak? I'll start with you, Elsa, did you? I did not. <laughs> okay, Ariel? Yeah, I, I went to their open house for their admitted students in the spring. Okay, Chris? Um, evidently all my open houses were canceled, so I got, uh, <laughs> I got to go to Yale, but um, like, as I was applying, I got experience. Oh, so it was more like it, it was more like just sneaking in and just checking um, it out, right? Yeah, I had some faculty kind of. I met with some faculty and they kind of showed me around, which is super lucky. Yeah, I shouldn't have used the word sneak because that just makes it sound even more stalkery. So, yeah, Chris, gonna, for the record, is I'm not a stalker. Across as like yeah, he Chris is cool stalker character. After this, I was gonna say go look him up, and then that's still probably yeah. not gonna help either. Uh, he's a, he's a nice cool uh, guy. Okay, uh, Sam, did you go to MIT before you actually signed? Yes, and a lot of the schools on the various coasts sort of coordinate their open houses such that you can hop between them as sort of like week-long tours. So that's a good way to sort of compare experiences just on the surface. Okay, so I'm going to start off this question with Chris just because he might not be able to address it immediately, but I think certainly the, the Raming Three could do it. But Chris, I mean, assuming that you were to start at Yale, right, are there like one thing, is there one big thing that you really was surprised about? Like, were you surprised that like, oh, there's no, I don't know, it, it's all guys or that, um, you know, we do stuff by hand, like, you know, we do manual drawing or something like, I mean, because I find it um, interesting when you hear these stories about going from institution to yeah. institution. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's hard to say, but one thing I was surprised, I guess I didn't expect was they have a fair amount of emphasis on um, hand drafting still. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, they have a, a course, or it's a summer program after the second year where they do a course where they go to Rome and they sketch the city mm -hmm. and sort of analyze it through their sketches. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a fair amount of other uh, representation, or there's, yeah, but there's other representation courses in the program that deal mm -hmm. with different methods of representation, uh, a fair amount of them have to do with hand drafting. Hmm. Okay, um, that, that, but that I think, is, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Oh, okay, um, so then Sam, going to you, was there anything that was a surprise? You know, it's hard to single out something. So I'm thinking to the beginning of my experience and I maybe exploded to make a bigger point. I guess the surprise was the emphasis on something like conversation. And so the way that manifested that, I, like the events that were kind of surprising to me was that, was that, you know, half of our class were people without architectural experience, but they came with other abilities, specifically conversational abilities, the ability to think through ideas and discuss them and read them. Uh, and so I thought that was like a great surprise and learning point for me. Mm. Okay, so hand drawing being sociable. Okay, this is getting good. Okay. Well, well I, think, I think it's more than sociability. Oh, yes, I mean, yes, I think, I, I think, okay. I, I get, I get, I'm just being me. Uh, Ariel, anything notable as a surprise? Yeah, for me, the, the biggest shock was that I came in and I, I was super excited about digital fabrication and parametric design. And for me, that was a cool new thing. And within my first week in the school, I realized that's the stuff they were doing like a decade ago. Mm -hmm. you know, anyone wanting to do that was kind of old news. So I kind of mm -hmm. had to adjust what I was going to learn and pick up a whole bunch of new skills that I, I didn't expect I was going to, to have there. And I think that that's a good thing, though. I mean, yeah, yeah, it, it I was the a good thing. Oh, yep, yep, exactly, exactly. Well, we came from the same background with uh, 
uh, Redux Lab. Your suffering is all on me. It's my fault. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll own that. Okay. Elsa, tell me, any surprises other than lots of bike riding out there? <laughs> um, biggest one, I guess, and it speaks to maybe the, I guess, the atmosphere of the Netherlands, maybe more so, but the faculty actually closes at night. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah. So you actually have to leave. <laughs> oh, serious? Def- like what? Like midnight or what? Um, midnight on, or it might've been, I can't remember exactly. It might've been 1130 or so, um, on normal weekdays. And they had kind of what they called Excel hours during deadlines and exams and that, but yeah, that was a big one. And, um, I think it's just kind of forcing a balance, I guess, on their students to try and not be in the faculty all the time, which you know, I guess is good in some ways and not so good in other ways, but okay. it ended up working out. <laughs> so I, I think we've talked about what are surprises going into those programs, but I mean, you guys all came from the Ryerson undergrad program. So can you just tell me, you know, starting with Chris, what would you say is something at Ryerson that helped you out when you proceeded to go into your, or into looking or into getting into or performing in the grad program? Um, when you say, how did it help me out? How, yeah, how, how did it help, it help you help out? My approach? Yeah, I mean, well, it doesn't even matter the approach. Like, I mean, I've talked to people that have gone to grad schools and they say, well, Vince, it was uh, this technical rigor or Vince, it was the fact that it was applied. Vince, it was yeah, that, would... uh, co-opted, whatever, right? I mean, the, the, tell me, what would you say is something that at Ryerson helped you, not maybe informing your decision, but just help you succeed, perhaps? I would say Ryerson helped... Uh, ground the projects I was working on in practicality enough Mm -hmm. where my projects had some substance behind them and they weren't just um, uh, shallow and super representational, which um, is, has its pros and cons, but I think um, the co-op experience helped ground um, certain social and and technical Mm. um, resolutions in my projects that otherwise might've gone unaddressed. Okay. And Ariel, you were saying, so if, if Chris is talking about that kind of real world kind of conditions as helpful, uh, Ariel, in, in your case, you'd mentioned that, you know, stuff that was being taught um, is, is obviously set to a very specific time, but, you know, the IVs, they have a little bit more flexibility to be at the avant-garde of things. What would you say that Ryerson has been able to help you when you proceeded to go into Penn? Uh, definitely knowing how a building comes together and works and its entire parts and all the factors that go in its design and its construction, every single consideration that makes it work definitely helped me focus on exactly opposite of that when I was at Penn because my, my instructor in first semester kept telling me, I know you know how to put a, put a building together. Mm-hmm. Now try to do something else. And I mm-hmm. know because you, your undergraduate education was so complete, that once you make this cool new thing, you'll be able to figure it out. Hmm, I was good. able to sort of skip that hurdle that a lot of students were having, be it with software and uh, the sort of technical definition of the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to just sort of create what I imagined and work on my theories and concepts and then make that into a building. Hmm, that, that's, that's good. That, that's a good build up off of what Chris had said. Elsa, what would you say is something that, you know, uh, at Ryerson helped you out 
Uh, I would have to agree with Ariel. Um, it's not, no, it was Chris's like, no. point to begin with. Just okay, pointing out there. Well, I'm just... well both then. <laughs> um, but building off of what Ariel said, I guess, um, definitely when you're surrounded by so many different people and their different backgrounds, you really get a sense of how like the Ryerson's technical background has really helped and particularly at Delft, which is a technical school. Um, they're kind of uh, assuming that you're going to have that knowledge as well. Um, mm -hmm. So in the subsequent projects and masters, you are at a disservice if you don't really have that. So I would say that's a big one, um, but also maybe less to do with the curriculum, but uh, dealing with criticism, I think is a big one too. Um, mm -hmm. Dutch people are particularly you know, direct in what they say. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's not personal. Um, but just being able to deal with the criticism and not let it kind of get you down and just say, okay, well, why would they say that kind of thing? And how is it going to direct me to kind of improve my project? So um, that really helped for sure. Okay. So that's a good one. So we got the technical, we got the dealing with criticism. Sam, give me something new. I'm banking on you because... You're, you're, you're the sage one in the room here. Oh, wow. That's uh, high praises. I mean, uh, mine is a modification because I think, you know, that is Ryerson's strength. The, the, the two versions that I felt like I was an advantage with were one specifically tools. And I don't know that Ryerson started off as a place that encouraged, you know, tools, digital tools in particular, but mm -hmm. I think you helped to foster that in a way such that by the time I got that, I got to the school and being enthusiastic about tools, I was much more capable mm -hmm. uh, in that sense and then could focus my energy on the parts I was not capable with. I could mm -hmm. bust things out, but I need, could spend more time thinking about an idea or researching something. Mm -hmm. The other side was more broadly like practice culture, I would say. And I think just generally it feels like the American schools maybe are at a deficit with that or these a lot of these schools that we're talking about, right? There isn't so much, you know, what happens in an office? How do we organize bodies? How do we organize systems? How do we uh, uh, sort of execute buildings? And not to say mm -hmm. that that's what we spend time in school doing, but that culture, I think, helps reinforce the ways we think about things, or relate to one, one another, or think about the consequences of what we do. Hmm. Okay, so that's, that's really interesting to hear all those different points of view on how Ryerson helped. But I want to also come back to the nature of the programs that you went to. Um, I, I'm surprised that when I was asking about what were surprises, that uh, none of you guys even so much as chimed in on issues pertaining to tuition. So very quickly, I, okay, okay take, 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 take it easy there. Um, but I'll start with Elsa first. I mean, because she's, she's got the easy one. So Elsa, tell okay. me what, what was surprising about tuition? Um, it's obviously a lot to go overseas, especially um you know if you're not from there I guess but for me I was lucky in that I had European passport and uh Delft tuition is based on your uh citizenship and not your residency so I lucked out and was able to pay local tuition which ended up being all in all like moving and everything com comparable to North America and uh, I was Canada, also lucky. Canada right sorry Canada yeah um, and specifically Ryerson while doing the comparison. Um, mm -hmm. And I was also lucky enough to be able to get a, a research assistant position too, which helped. Okay. So that wasn't too, too bad. And now I'm going to open it to, let's say Ariel, let's go <laughs> yeah? start off with Ariel, man. How's that tuition? You still paying it off? Oh, wait, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Ariel didn't listen to my two rules, which is don't get married. Don't, you know, don't have kids, but Hey, I mean, 
So, so Ariel, tell me <laughs> one know, of the kids. things. <laughs> I want to hear the other rules. <laughs> okay, hey, hey, focus. So, Ariel, tell us about the tuition shock. Yeah, the, the, the tuition I knew was going to be a ton coming in. So that factored in my decision. It was I could either go to school in Canada and save a ton of money or get these new experiences. And it was a huge leap. So a lot of give, give thought, us a number here. Give us a number if you don't mind. <laughs> oh man, uh, tuition is about sixty k a year now. When yep. I started, about fifty eight. I didn't oh. pay that because I got a very big scholarship, and like else, I also got a research assistant, assistant position, and I worked throughout the whole time there. Mm-hmm. But still, it's it's hefty, mm-hmm. and the question of whether it's worth it is probably gonna keep building for the rest of my career. But I'd say so far in my year outside of grad school, the experiences I got from the school and the connections I've made have been worth it. Okay. And then Chris, just going to you, um, yeah. I, I know that uh, it's, it's, it's still kind of new, but you know, tell me about tuition <laughs> and tell me about like, how does one get scholarships? Like Ariel just mentioned scholarships. And I think if we yeah. see a price tag that's in like the 60 grand uh, you know, level, you're going to need to find a way to get scholarships. I mean, tell me about the price and then tell me about how you are looking at resolving that uh, kind of price (laughs) shock. Yeah. You might have to follow up with me in a couple of years and see uh, if I'm drowning (laughs) or not. But uh, um, I guess this might not be the best advice, but my approach, (laughs) (laughs) well, my approach was look at the schools and don't think about tuition. Um, And then I, and so I basically applied without thinking about it, got offers just didn't just made sure to not look at the money part because I knew I knew it was going to be super expensive so in my in my eyes you know as soon as you start to play the numbers game you sort of back down from your ultimate goal so and now that I am shackled with the number um, I think I would say it's it, it's hard to like it's you could play the game where you ask how much is connections worth and can you get certain connections mm-hmm. without paying such a price? Like the argument can be made. If I go to a Canadian school, I can be just, just as well off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my, I mean, it, it all depends on who you are as a person, but I also think um, paying such a price lights a fire under your ass to do greater things down the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that also played a factor for me as far as getting like money and just, actually crunching the numbers and making it work um i know that i mean i i got a fair amount of it taken off um Hmm. with the the offer that was sent to me so i was lucky enough to have that but also um i think i was i have i have federal funding available to me as well because i'm a dual citizen oh you lucked Uh, out because i was going to say to get funding of a canadian citizen in America yeah. is not okay. Yeah. So I have advice, maybe <laughs> to a small American. fraction of people. But uh, if you are applying as a dual citizen, at least in the states, it was advised to me um, to apply as an American rather than as an international student. Because take note, Ariel, you, take note. Yeah, the funding, <laughs> you're more. Uh, I guess there's more funding opportunities for you through that <laughs> route. I mean, also I chose Yale because they have a wealth of resources and that includes all of the travel is paid for um which is which i thought was a huge plus and they also have like a a very high percentage of their students who do uh who, who have teaching positions that teach their undergrads or do research positions and that so kind of 
so that's where I wanted to go off with Sam because Sam, um, I know that going to MIT is not exactly cheap either. And you were very blessed in that you had uh, teaching acumen. So I often tell students that it's not just simply getting scholarship money. It's also the fact that you can either serve as a teaching or a research assistant. And I, I'd like to have you open up that discussion on just what does that mean in terms of what you would be doing? Because I think students listening see it in a very different way. Sometimes they don't even see what teaching assistants do or research assistants do or, or mm. not familiar. But then the other thing is just how much does that serve to open doors, you know, potential benefits aside from just simply cost offsets? I start off by saying the thing, the, the thing that was surprising was um, not that you had to come in with teaching experience, but that you just had to express interest and enthusiasm and capability in a course um, uh, in a way that you might set you up later on. Um, the sort of things involved yeah, can range. I, I've created a course where the, professor never showed up and I taught every studio of my own, uh, <laughs> an undergrad studio. And then I've had other ones where- $60,000, you know, huh? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the pay isn't proportionate necessarily. Um, and then conversely, you know, a core uh, sort of course, I would act as a sort of technical support and instructor, right? Where the professor sets a sort of uh, conceptual or intellectual sort of framework and mm -hmm. I help sort of execute and support uh, students learning the tools, right? So there, there's a range there, but I think, uh, you know, my, my advice would be just generally to, uh, maybe even in undergrad, I'm not sure, but definitely in grad school, there's a room for you to express your interest uh, to your professors, um, to remind them that you're involved and that you're willing to help out. The other thing I wanted to contribute to the conversation was that and this is where maybe the advice about finding people at other schools or that have other experiences to kind of get a sense of what the culture of that school is like is that um, certain schools actually have a higher uh, chance of you getting the scholarship. Mm -hmm. and so like ha knowing those uh, might help, you know, you choose where to apply. And so some schools like, I don't know, should, be, should I be name dropping or not name dropping? You can name drop. Uh, it's not me saying it. <laughs> um, yeah, then maybe, then I'll remove the name. But I mean, in the case, in my case, also they produce scholarships uh, throughout your term at the school. And so I was lucky to get one after my first year where I, it was, my work was a little more recognized and my contribution in the class was a little more valued in a way that sustained me for the rest of the time there. So I, I would give that provision, like as you're looking at schools, wait till you get to an open house and you can ask questions about financial support in those cases. Mm -hmm. So I want to I add quickly to that, some advice that I got when I went to the open house and I've been given to every single person that's gotten an acceptance and is saying that they didn't get a big enough scholarship. Just email them back and say, you'd love to attend, but you wish for them to reconsider the scholarship amount because it's too much. I did that. And within a week, I got a response offering me $10,000 more per year. And I have friends that did the same thing twice. And then the second time around, they got a full ride. So I regret not doing it a second time. Because what's happening is a lot, like of, <laughs> a lot of students are getting these offers with big scholarships, but these are top students that are also getting offers at other universities. So they might turn down a big scholarship offer. Now that money's sitting there. So you just email them saying, hey, do you have any more money? And they say, as a matter of fact, we do. You, okay, you I think go. that's a really good point because from what I've heard from faculty members as well, um, the amount of students who do that, and I also was one of those students that did that, um, it, it is 
a, a high percentage. Yep. So can I chime in on this one as a faculty member on this? So um, th- one of the reasons why that does work, it's all about timing because usually the good students have probably said no. So then you have like a pot of money on a full ride that you kind of have to say, like, say, for example, Ariel was not a third or fourth choice and he got like maybe 70% of his tuition covered. Right. But now that I know that Elsa, who was my first choice, bailed and said she's going to go somewhere else. Guess what? I got all this extra money now. Hey, Chris, uh, I can top you up to 75. Ariel, I can top you up to full ride. And it, it's really all about timing, too. Like that, that's something that's really important to know. It's not like they're just kind of playing like a hold and wait game with you kids. Yeah. It's just straight up like someone just pulled. That's just part of it. Like, I think if you're a student who's applying, I mean, it doesn't I don't really it doesn't really matter if you're like first or fifth down the pipeline to get certain funding like I think just knowing that that's an option is really helpful for prospective students that might get super excited by the offer and accept right away when they could potentially um, make something happen. Yeah. Elsa, you're going to say something? Uh, yeah, I was just going to add one more thing. Um, if you're looking international, also take into consideration like the, um, the deadlines, because when I was applying, I was applying right after fourth year or at, I guess during fourth year. Um, and I think like most wanted to have my first uh, semester of fourth year work in my portfolio to submit. Um, but actually for, for Delft particularly, the applications open in October, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and for places like Delft, they're um, accepting kind of also on a quota. So you have to consider when you're applying. Um, so, I mean, the earlier you apply, the better chances you get in. Um, but also the scholarship deadlines are also early. So for me, I miss them because of when I applied, but, um, you know, if you're proactive and kind of where you want to apply, also kind of look into that because it might put you at a disservice if you don't look at it early enough. So this is actually really good to know because I think a lot of students might be very curious about applying and, and, and I think finance is one of the big challenges, but I also know, um, that there are, other obstacles. And I'll start with you, Elsa, because I think that you're more the anomaly to everyone else here on this one, because uh, we know that obviously grades matter. We know that a portfolio is important and letters of intent and also letters of reference, right? But um, is sometimes we have things like uh, English tests, we have GMATs, we have uh, IELTS and all these other fun tests uh, to kind of determine whether or not you speak English or can succeed in grad studies in any given country or institution. Mm-hmm. So Elsa, did you have to do anything for extra in admissions for uh, DELT? Um, fortunately, not really, um, because Canada is known to be an English speaking country and uh, all the master's program in the Netherlands are taught in English. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I didn't, but they do have basic requirements for English uh, proficiency mm-hmm. that people from other countries have to either do at the time of their um, application or they have, and they have to send in their, um, I guess, certificates along with that. that. Hmm. See, that's, that's kind of funny because it's, it's interesting that the Netherlands will take students from Ryerson because they understand that Canadians speak English. But I have students that apply to McGill. And when I get to do the reference letters, the form actually says, does the student speak English? Is the student able to understand English in a classroom setting? Is the student able to understand English in a studio setting? I'm like, 
how like we're in the same country you should know this right like so yeah it's a point that i i do want to i did want to bring up also if you're looking international i guess it's not as much for the states but um when you have to think about what it means for you when you come back to canada um, oh yep yep do talk about that for a sec yeah <laughs> um so I, I guess with the exception of a couple of schools uh when you come back you have to get your uh degree certified by the CACB who does mm-hmm. the certification for all of the programs in Canada uh architecture programs in Canada so you have to go through a whole process and I mean I knew I had to do it um but so coming back it was something that was just another part of this process um but I mean the kind of they just catch everyone um I guess coming back and they don't look at if you well they do look at it but they look at your whole um architectural education mm-hmm. so regardless if you went to school in Canada coming back they you still have to follow the same um as if someone coming from any other country and mm-hmm. having no experience in Canada has to do so yeah. that's just something that you kind of have to bite the bullet on it's just the process <laughs> yeah i know that that's a pain and we never have that equivalency but coming back to our stateside buddies uh i know ariel let's start off with you um uh let's do some fun word games right you seem rather lugubrious today like come on tell tell us about some of the fun that you had to do to prep all the gres yeah there we go See, I'm not. Uh, I'm what not is a GRE? Good. What? Why do we have to do them? What do they try to do? Um, how? How often? Like, is it just I do a test online? Do I like tell everyone about what the GREs are and how they actually are pertinent to Masters of Architecture applications? The GREs are uh, the SAT's big mean brother. Uh, <laughs> why? Why we do it? I have no idea. I was Cash on, cow. I was on Archinect the whole time preparing, and everyone was asking oh, do the GREs matter for admissions at X school? And it never did matter. And even being in the school, I asked within the department and really they only checked the GREs as the last last factor if mm-hmm. they're between two students who are like equally tied, which rarely happens. That said, it's a, you have to take it. Yeah. Honestly, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a cash cow. Because uh, it costs, I, again, several hundred dollars or a few hundred dollars to do an yeah. exam, right? And again, I was unprepared and I realized that the next test I could take on time for grad school was I think within two weeks of where I was. And it was right around the times of of finals for my first semester, fourth year at Ryerson. So yeah, I basically had to cram in one week. I learned, I wanna say 500 words. I added 500 words to my vocabulary within a week. I crammed so much math that my, my brain broke. Um, I, I passed it. I did well in vocabulary and math. I bombed essay writing <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I only remember two of the words from that entire list. <laughs> I have no idea where in my brain it was. Oh, uh, I remember those sessions where you just come to my office and like, we'd play the fun word game and I'd be like, how do you not know that word? And then I, and then you, there was the instances where it's like, you keep using that word, Ariel, but I don't think you know what it means. That well, kind of thing. One <laughs> of the words was schadenfreude. Yes, which is German. Pleasure out of happiness. How is that an English word? The same reason why sushi is an English word. Come on, man. Get with it. They're both tasty. Yeah. So I remember Schadenfreude <laughs> and I remember Sardonic. Oh, really? That's, oh, wait, wait. Do you don't remember the lugubrious discussion? Fine. I, I, that, 
I, that's somewhere else in my brain. I have no idea. It's with, no it's recollection. With, it, it's with differential equations. All right. So, Chris, how did you find GREs? Um, I, I would say one thing to note is that the area I was kind of hinting at is it is really important to be aware of the deadline or like the sort of like the, the timeline for the way the GREs operate because mm -hmm. um, it takes a certain amount of time, like a couple of weeks for them to calculate your score. And it takes, um, and you can't, if you do want to retake the test, I think you have to wait like a month or some period yeah, of time it, it to depends, retake it. It so depends you really on the time of year. Yeah. yeah. So it's good to know um, basically how late you can push it. What I did was I actually just wrote it a year before I applied. Um, mm -hmm. So like the October of a year I could have applied, and then but then I just worked for another year. And so um, I just wanted to get it off of my... So, so one thing... I was going to say though, Chris, one thing that people should know is that you can do it in advance of doing your application to a master's, but it does have a time. It does have like a, a best before yeah, date. Like you can't just sit and do it like 10 years year, ago. Yeah. It's a five-year window. Yeah. And I knew that I would be applying in the five years and I just wanted to um, get it out of the way. So I, uh, I had like a, I, I think I put like two months of studying in mm -hmm. before which yeah. was fine. I don't know. It's, it's really like, um, it really is like a shot in the dark though, like with a lot of it, like especially the the whole vocab thing is insane because, I mean, you can just memorize, you could just not memorize the words that are on the test. So it really is like a ridiculous endeavor. Okay, probably not the best study tips from Chris there. Um, so Chris, Chris, tips not good. Ariel's scheduling terrible. Sam, give us some good insightful <laughs> tips on, on the GRE, that kind of exam. Thankfully, I have a slightly different story. I'm, I'm like notoriously bad at tests. Um, and I was unreasonably worried about this, but I think I came up with a good strategy, which is to say, um, it seems like the whole point is knowing how to take the test. And the best tool I found was actually taking the practice tests. Mm -hmm. um, so I think they have maybe five they give you for free or something, or three, something of the sort. And so I nicely spaced them out uh, across, uh, I want to say, one or two months, such that I could do studying uh, on the weekends for I don't know how much I allotted, maybe five hours mm -hmm. uh, on the weekend or something, just sort of you know, uh, re-familiarize myself with what I've forgotten, but also taking just the practice test knows you, uh, helps you focus on uh, where to focus your energy, basically. And, mm -hmm. you know, to second the point made earlier, I've been on the other side, on the admissions side, and juries don't matter the most. But, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a borderline candidate or if there's something suspicious about your grades or something about your writing, it might be, be like a litmus test for that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's don't slack on it. Don't worry about doing the best on it. There are far more important things. Okay. So that's one thing that I think a lot of people who are thinking of applying for grad school aren't aware of, that there are other uh, parameters that might be mandated by institutions, whether it's, say, language proficiency, or in this case, we're talking about the GRE. But let's come back to the Ryerson model, because we, you know, I think, I think it's been very clear that though uh, a lot of the benefits have been to talk about how we are dealing with an, a very applied education where kids understand how buildings can actually be made. So architecture uh, is something that is the concept, building is just how it's executed. Um, I, I think that now it's really important to just highlight, if you had one message to tell a student, I'll start with you, Chris, right? If you had one message to tell a student um, on their portfolios, because that's a critical thing to get in, right? Um, so what mm -hmm. would it be? 
What would that one thing Por- be? Portfolio specific or application yes, yes. specific? I mean, portfolio. I'd say portfolio, yeah. Um, it's important. Your individual projects are really important. Uh, and this is, I mean, if you can have your eye on this from the get-go, from year one, it's, it's great. But obviously, not everyone has the luxury. But if you are taking a step back and looking at your portfolio when you're applying and you realize you have a ton of partner project, group work, um, professional work, that stuff is weighted less heavy mm-hmm. than the individual study, or the individual studio projects and the, the stuff that really shows your unique outlook and how it interjects in your studio projects. Okay. Uniqueness is important. Sam, give me a good tip to a candidate applying to a big name school in their, with respect to their portfolios. Maybe uh, treat it as a designed artifact in the same way you would treat a design project otherwise it's not something to be unconsidered uh, but also you know when you're designing a building you're looking at precedents right you're looking at what other people are doing so mm-hmm. you, I, I mean I think in general with my advice just generally is looking beyond what's immediately in front of you mm-hmm. um, so whether you're going to your education or making your portfolio I think that's important okay Ariel, give me a good tip for a portfolio for grad schools, big name grad schools in particular. I'd say uniformity. You're going to have to go back and re-edit all your first and second year work to look as good as your current work. Wait, you put first year projects in your student, in your portfolio for grad school? I might have for some of them. Have Wait, you updated your flash drawings? Seriously? <laughs> Maybe the, that surge, the, the, the vestibule for... for oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of those. But yeah, you got to go back and re-edit everything, make sure your diagrams are consistent, your your renderings are consistent throughout, and also that every page has something that draws the eye, because the speed at which they're going through these portfolios, it's going to make more of an impact if there's uniformity and something interesting in each page, because they're not really going to be looking at each page. I I think that's a good point, but I kind of have a a counterpoint to it. Um, I think you run the risk when it comes to going back and editing stuff and uniformity and trying to make everything cohesive. You run the risk of every project reading the same. Um, Mm. And I think my portfolio really suffered from having a very similar, um, I mean, this is before I edited it for Mm. hours and hours with the actual um, application. But one thing I really wanted to change was that I wanted every single project to be sort of a different polemic or a um, a different statement. Mm-hmm. And it, as well as trying to get the represent the way I'm representing projects to, to read differently. So I would say, well, that's good advice. It, it, you could also uh, fall into the trap of making every single project look the exact same and I guess boring the people looking. At I, I would say that it, it, just my chiming on this one is, I think both of you guys are right, but I think it depends on the nature of the design. Um, so I know, for example, in Ariel's, Actually, I know both of your works. Um, in, in Ariel's work, it's very, um, the, the eclectic nature of, of the projects does kind of need some sort of bonding agent, which kind of says it's all done by the same guy. It's not some random dude that just copied stuff out of magazines. Um, so, so I think in that case, it does make a little bit more sense. And you're right, Chris, in, in your case, remember how we were talking about how dogmatic your portfolio is that like, there is like every single page is like, you got the one big, cool, solid, sp- sexy spread on with the big image yeah. here. And that, yeah. So I think, I think in both cases, those, those two rules should exist. I just think it depends on the nature of the design work that well, comes I'm from like, that particular student. If, if you're telling the story the same way with every single project, mm-hmm. then that, that almost shows um, a, 
a weakness that you that you're not that might come out, which is that you're seeing every single project is basically being the same, the same approach. Yeah, no, which I, is bad, that. really bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, um, Elsa, give me a final tip on a portfolio worthy of being accepted by a big name school. Um, I would say really do the research on what the program's looking for, um, mm-hmm. and you'll get a sense of that kind of in how they lay out the requirements of the portfolio. Um, in my experience, some of them required a lot more writing and some of mm. them didn't. Um, and also really follow the instructions. You know, um, like in terms of formatting, even um, one of my profs at Delft sat on the admissions committee and they said that if the PDF that they received was more than like even a page more than the, they said they didn't even open it. Um, it didn't even get sent to them actually. Um, so even if there's a blank page in there um, that didn't, wasn't supposed to be there, then you're kind of out. So just be careful with that um, in terms of the formatting. And to be honest, I don't have much to add to the, okay. you know, how you're representing the projects. I think everything that was said is, is right. Okay. So Can I contribute one more thing oh, yeah, yeah, that sure. I, I found surprising? Again, being on the other side of admissions, it seems like uh, sometimes if you have an overwhelming amount of students coming from one school applying to the same school, their portfolios look so uniform between them, mm-hmm. right? So not only do you have projects that are shared between the portfolios, but, you know, they, each school comes with a sort of aesthetic baggage, I would say. And so yeah. just being cognizant, if your peers are all applying to the same school, might be motivation for you to change up your assumptions about how you present your work. Yeah, that's such a really, really good point because we, we see that happening not only for uh, portfolios, but even when we're judging like international competitions, like all the entries from a certain, not school, but a geographic location happen to do a certain type of aesthetic. So that all said, guys, thank you for the insight on the finance, on the like kind of hurdles and certainly the portfolios. But I'm going to you know, put a little bit of a levity spin on this. All of you guys have come through our program. So I'm going to start with you, Sam. Give me a good reminiscent story of back in the old days, you know, that, hey, it gets better. I, look, this is what happened when I was in school or this was ha- something that happened to some other people in school. And look, um, uh, when I came to my institution or whatever, I, I you know, I, I was totally flabbergasted at this or got a good story back from the old days when you were in Ryerson. Like, give me some good story to uplift the spirits, so to speak. Can you come back to me? <laughs> My memory is poor. I, I've been gone the longest. I need more time to re- remember. <laughs> oh, man, psychotropic drugs. Okay, fine. Let's go to you, Elsa, please. Um, Are you uh, like breathing secondhand <laughs> stuff that Sam's doing? What? No, okay. Well, um, I guess something that happened to me in first year. Uh, I cried in your office once. <laughs> uh, okay. okay. Uh, about physics or structures. Mm-hmm. No, I think, I think it, was, it's physics. it was physics. It was physics. Yeah. Um, that, that's I not exactly a funny, funny no, story. But don't get, I, my advice is to not get overwhelmed or try not to get overwhelmed and it gets better after because that was my low point and it got much better. <laughs> Why, okay, why is the low point got involved me, man? Oh, fine, fine. Are these fine. low point stories or high point stories? Yeah, I'm serious. Like someone did not understand the question. Chris, give me a funny high, Wait, high, high story. That was a, that was a I question. Can, I can I'm, give a high one too. Give but... me a high story without Baruch. Uh, go, give me a good, good high story. Uh, I guess being able to travel um, in school for presenting conferences, that was a pretty good 
experience. Oh, and and uh, where did you go? Where did you went go? Went to Valencia and Hong Kong. Ah, uh, yes, so. yes. Yep. Okay. Uh, Ariel, give me, give me some highs and lows. Well, I remember I was your research assistant for most of my time at Ryerson. And that's I remember a low. What, that's a low, isn't it? <laughs> well, the, fir the first assignment you gave me was right after we did the cardboard bridges assignment over the pool where we all had to build bridges out of cardboard and duct tape and put our entire team on it. You know, the funny thing is most kids don't actually know about that project. And the second thing is even when they do, they don't think that I'm the one that was allowed to teach structures. They don't. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, then th this, this story, you can, you can show them the video because mm -hmm. what happened is I think you wanted to make me, wanted me to make a video for yep. accreditation or something to show yep. to people. And you gave me all the footage, but what I did instead was made, I basically made a fail compilation mm -hmm. uh, with, with uh, that went along with music. And I think and it, I gave you the cue. I gave you that music cue too. I told you to use that. I said, use this. <laughs> I it, thought it was very good. It Thank still you. holds up, but I'm not even sure if you were able to use it for any accreditation. It's still purposes. online and other universities point out to that. Other high schools point out to like what separates our programs. So thank you again. That, that, is a, that is a high. I think a lot of kids that do look at that. I, I think right now Hitesh is teaching it with first year and he, uh, he decided to change a little bit because he's an engineer. So, uh, you know, God love you, Hitesh. But uh, the thing is that he didn't want to take any chances with the pool. So when he gave the assignment, it's like, okay, kids, we're going to walk one foot off. Like there's like two cinder blocks or something. So walk between the two cinder blocks and uh, you'll, you'll fall all of like one foot or something like that. So they, they got it easy. So they didn't get it fun. Yeah, because when he told me he was going to change, I was like, oh, you're going to put it like break some glass bottles and make them fall onto that? And he was like, what's wrong with you? So didn't quite work <laughs> out. Um, okay, give me, give me, give me a, I guess a low then. I don't know. Maybe I just don't remember them and I repress these the bad memories, <laughs> but I don't think I can give a low. Uh, okay, Chris, give me something high and low. Okay. I, I think I took school maybe a little too seriously, so I have a funny one and a and a low one. Good. Uh, which which one? Both or both? Come on, man. Okay, okay, all right. Uh, I think, and I also think the uh, the lows are really important actually because um, they're never highlighted. And I think it's really helpful for students at to a young age to, to just yeah. know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so one kind of it's, I actually laugh at this one in retrospect, but I, I wasn't laughing in uh, during the time, but I had a, in first year, I wasn't attuned to the, that whole, you know, like you work towards the, the crit, even if it's just a desk crit, you kind of bust your ass to, uh, to get your, your work up to scrap. And you think you have a project that, you're going to be developing. Mm -hmm. And then you, I wasn't accustomed to the idea of just completely reworking everything and hearing from a prof, like you're on the complete wrong track and you need to restart, redo it. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember a particularly bad crit. Um, and I was feeling probably for other reasons too, just like super overwhelmed. Um, and so I was out in the, in the atrium kind of, trying to keep it together. Uh, it's not cool to, you know, lose it around your peers. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, I was really uh, trying to keep it, keep it in. Uh, and then I, I looked down and I'm getting a call from my dad and I'm like, this is, this is a, could honestly be great. Like I, I, I would like to hear from my dad right now. Like this is, mm -hmm. this might be able to pick my spirits up. So I like go into the washroom. I don't want to, people, I don't want people to know that I'm talking to my dad. Like that's, that's weak. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I pick up the phone and I say, Hey, how's it going? And he said, Oh, hello. And I said, Hey dad, it's, it's what's up. And he, 
And he said, oh, I must have called you by accident. Sorry, I'm at work. And then he hung up. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was a rough day. <laughs> but I wouldn't say, would not say that helped the situation. Um, so it was definitely a low. Um, and just learning to, I mean, the, the overlying theme there is just learning. Don't rely on your parents. Studio culture. Oh, yeah, I mean, that true. Yeah. yeah, don't rely on family, friends, anything. Don't get, don't get it. Don't Normies kids. don't get it. Yeah, Normies exactly. don't get it, man. Nobody gets it. Nobody gets yeah, me. No. I'm an artist. Give me a good one, Chris. Come on. <laughs> yeah, the other one is, is, is a funny one as well, but it's not so depressing. Um, I remember I was writing a paper with Jen, um, and I got a great opportunity to present it at a conference in Berlin. And I also got the opportunity to get it funded by the school. And so I needed to prepare, to prepare a presentation um, for, the, for the student funding group. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember the night before I was kind of putting my slides together, summarizing the paper, the research I had done. And part of the slides um, was to put together uh, what I thought I should be allotted, like the amount of money. So I did like a little, little chart calculated everything, came up to uh, 10 grand. So I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to ask for. Mm -hmm. And then about a half an hour before I was presenting, I was texting one of my friends and he was like, yeah, yeah, I had a similar experience last year. It was great. And they gave me about two grand. And I thought, okay, I might've, uh, I mean, at this point I could not ask for that, but it was still in my slides. So there was a point when I was asking for funding during that presentation where that amount popped up and they all sort of laughed. And mm -hmm. then they said, maybe look into an Airbnb rather than the conference hotel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, that was a high cause I was going to Berlin to, uh, I was first author on a paper that I got to present in Berlin, mm -hmm. but it was also like kind of a funny mishap that I also look back on and laugh about. Uh, you kids in numbers. Sam, yeah. give me a high and a low story, please. I'm, I'm gonna steal nuggets from the others to sort of generate what my own. What's wrong with you kids, man? <laughs> um, <laughs> the first uh, so I don't know if you still have communication studio is the first studio yes. uh, in the first year. So the first assignment, I'm pretty sure we had to do it on the weekend. There was something about perspectives, which in retrospect, I'm sure was probably pretty easy. But I like similarly, I also felt pretty overwhelmed and like distraught and like, oh, you know, I really should have prepared more going into this, but I mean, you get through it and you remember always that you're sort of reaching beyond your immediate capabilities to something that's not immediately there for you, mm -hmm. um, but that you'll eventually come to a sort of resolution with. The other one, I'm going to steal a little bit from Ariel and my first assignment <laughs> with uh, Vince, or oh. not assignment, I'd say, but research assignment involves spending uh, the whole day, not the whole night, Vince, uh, laser cutting and like completely like really uh, embodying the sort of iterative Wait, dude, 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 this is being recorded, okay? So you just can edit it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear it. <laughs> um, like really embodying this is going to be like a me too thing, you know, that's going to happen, right? <laughs> me too. <laughs> I, I gave I you an escape route. <laughs> um, so I spent the whole day laser cutting or, or sort of iterating between drawing and laser cutting, like mm -hmm. sitting by the laser cutter and uh, sort of uh, producing, what I want to say is like a tabletop lamp to be used for an event of some sort. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that just felt like both a special opportunity because someone gave it to me to, and gave me, it was trusted me to sort of accomplish it, but also like really I could sit with the tool and this is when we just 
well, maybe a year after we got the laser cutter, so it was a relatively unused or sort of precious uh, commodity in the school. Mm -hmm. uh, you could like sit there and like learn it and understand its quirks and like produce sort of methodology and sort of um, uh, tactility with the thing. So I, I really appreciated that. That's uh, that's kind of depressing that that's a, yeah, that's a positive story. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, so, <medium. laughs> so I'm just going to go through very quickly because you guys got to work on your storytelling. See, I, I can just go right now. So Elsa, for example, coming off of that one, I remember that very key moment when you were in my office about, you know, about the, the structures and that is just overwhelming. And I'm not sure if you remember this. This is the fun part. Um, after you, um, when you started crying, I remember I went to my desk and I pulled out a, a hand towel, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So this, I gave her a hand towel and she, I said, just use this, right? Because I don't like touching anything, let alone people, right? So she, she used it and then she like offered it back. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not taking that back, man. That's weird. So then of course, a couple of days later, you actually returned it to me, washed and everything. And to this day, <laughs> I still have that in my office and it is the, it is known as the oh Elsa. Yeah, I know, I know. It is the Elsa <laughs> crying, you know, the, the, the one that I used to sop up all the tears of people in my office. So it, it's never left my office since, except when I wash it. But I just thought that, that it's, it's in my books, it's the Elsa, you know. <laughs> you need tissues or something. <laughs> um, I actually do. Uh, I actually do. I I'm one of the only faculty members who actually out of his uh, personal uh, development fund, I spend about, I mean, maybe not in COVID time, but I spend about maybe uh, $70 to $80 a year on Kleenex boxes for, for the office. Okay. Um, Sam, I want to tell a low story for you. Uh, <laughs> you remember, no, 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 so, so, so these are all uplifting stories because I want to make sure you guys all know the, the listeners because A, I, I want everyone to know that I have taught all of you guys, which is crazy too. But the other thing is that even in the worst times, like Elsa, she was breaking down and she was going through all this craziness in, in, in first year, but she got through it. She went to China, oh, sorry, to Hong Kong, to Spain. She's co-op. She did a whole bunch of great things and she's working in Toronto and she's great. And she went to Delft, so it's all good. So these are all stories about the past that make you realize, kids, if you're listening, it's about making sure that you're uplifted too. So Sam, do you remember fourth year studio, Vegas? Yeah, I was kind of, I was thinking about trying ah, to remember. Yeah. So, so the thing is, you probably blocked it out because I will be <laughs> honest with you. See, the thing is, Sam at the same point was also one of my research assistants. And the thing was, Sam decided to try to go out and do the, like, if, if I expected level 11 out of people, he tried to aim for level 15, right? <laughs> and, and the thing was, he really killed himself to the point where it was the final studio project and he got everything done except for the physical model. Do you remember this, Sam? It's, yeah, maybe. Okay. And it was something that to me, because everyone knows that I'm black and white. And I was like, God, this is terrible because I know the guy, he's capable of doing so many good things, but he just couldn't he get a good design, cool ideas, cool envelope system, but he couldn't pull it together to get a physical model. And I had to give him a low grade because of the actual lack of a model, right? You can't give him grades for something he didn't do. And then of course he was like, oh, and I'm going to be applying to grad schools. And I was like, I'm your referee, no problem. And I remember putting letters together to say, if you do not take this kid, you are doing yourself a disservice. This kid will go a million times more than what you expect. This kid didn't have grades that reflected just how awesome he actually is and it would be stupid for you not to take them and lo and behold sam got in right 
Thanks. Now, man. Chris, just for you, do you want to share? Remember, remember when we started you in co-op and it was a point in time when it was like, Vince, I, I can't get, I, I'm not, I'm not sure how I'm doing this. And we had to do your, your mock interviews and I was like, something's wrong. Right. And remember what I pulled you and a couple of other guys up and I, we were just going, why do you suck at doing interviews? Remember, do you remember this in the crit space? Vaguely. Uh, Oh, well, let me remind you, because it just ended up with like me rapid fire asking you guys questions. And if you thought interrogation questions were rough, just imagine me sitting at the other side of a desk, just asking you, you know, what you're good at, what you're not good at, how you get better and all that stuff. And these kids were all just like, whatever, right? I even asked them basic questions, like, what are you good at? And the thing was, no matter what question you would give to Chris, like it was like a simple low ball softball question, which would be like, what are you good at? And he would be like, I'm okay at using computers, I guess, but I'm not the best in the class. Um, there are other people that are better than me. Like this guy over here, he's better than me at this. And I was like, holy crap, like this is terrible because that was the problem. Chris was notorious and to this day, self-deprecation, right? And he would always crap on himself, right? He would always make himself sound or look bad. And fortunately, kids, he got out of that a little bit so that now yeah. he's, he's, you know, he did enough, he did enough flexion so that now he's going to Yale, right? And you, Ariel, Man, oh. oh man, do we have tons of stories. Yeah, well, this is the thing. See, there's so many fun stories, but there's small little ones. But I remember when I tore apart one of your projects. Do you remember this? No. <laughs> oh, see, I do, because I actually kept the email. Um, because um, you sent, I said, I, I, it, was on the, it was in second year when I was studio master. And I said, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. Everything's bad about this, right? And... Um, you basically sent me a response back saying, um, I, I, I'm, I'm really not cool with your feedback. I, I, I think that it was, it was presented and it was dwelling too much on the negative. And the best part about this, because language, and you and I have had this discussion about language, right? You actually yeah. sent, um, you, you, I think it was something where you basically said, instead of, um, you, you were using the words wrong. And I think you said it to me, not, not, or, or it was said to me. And you actually said, um, I resent those comments to you. Or I resent those comments. And I was like, what do you mean you resent the comments to me? And then all this time I was like, oh, he meant he resents being, he resents the comments that I made, right? <laughs> and that's where I was like, okay, I gotta print this off. And just as a follow-up on the positive note on that one, see, Ariel and I always had these fun games. Cause if you guys don't know us, Ariel happens to be one of the punniest guys that's in his class, right? But it was funny because we were all, Elsa, Ariel, we were all in Hong Kong. And I was trying to explain to people in Hong Kong, I think it was at that point in time, we were meeting some of the triad leaders, uh, no word of a lie. We were talking to people from the, the triads. And I was trying to explain to the, them where you were from because they're like, he's not Canadian, right? And I was like, no, 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 he is, but he's Nicaraguan. Do you remember we had to look up on like Google on the fly what Nicaraguan meant? Remember yeah. this? And I then, remember that. Yeah, it was so on like that, a Chinese dictionary app though. Yeah, so we looked it up in Chinese dictionary. And then remember, what, do you remember what the funny part was about this whole thing? <laughs> the sentence? Yeah, because it was like Nicaraguan. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, what is Nicaragua? A person from Nicaragua. Like that's what it was. And then it's like used in a sentence. And do you remember that the sentence was something to the effect of, um, I helped out this poor Nicaraguan because he was so homeless or something. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. And then we were just like, that is the worst racist Chinese English dictionary I've ever. So I got stories for all of you guys, all of my kids, but I'm really glad that you guys had the ability to take the time out. I'm glad that I could share some stories about you guys in maybe not the best of times, but that you guys were able to come through and do well. And, and that's what I want a lot of the listeners to know that, you know, the program that we gave, gave you guys, um, I hope helped you guys in some way. 
I hope it offers some inspiration to a lot of listeners to know that you guys have made a lot of strides. And I want to personally thank each of you guys for being really good at what you guys do and really continuing the legacy of what we do here. And and I told a lot of people this in the past, like, and I might have told you guys this, right? I, I call you guys my kids a lot of times, not because it's a it's meant to be a negative. It's because I honestly, maybe I'm raised properly, like, you know, my Chinese parents beat me. So I'm of the opinion that, you know, if you're if anything, you live vicariously through your children, right? Your offspring. And the best way I can see you guys succeeding is the best kind of level of, of living. So when I see you guys doing well out there, when you guys are getting the big leagues, when you guys are getting in the firms, that makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. And you're talking to a guy with, I arguably has no heart and soul, but I want to say thank you for taking the time out. You guys are super busy, even in the pandemic and sharing your experiences is absolutely incredible. And I hope it's really good for the kids listening. All right. So thank you very much, guys. Thank you, Vince. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Vince. Vince.